All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 14 through 20 this morning. That is Mark 13, 14 through 20. And if you want to go ahead and put your uh, thumb in Daniel chapter 9, uh, we're going to be there in a little while. Or at least be prepared to go to Daniel 9. Uh, we're obviously continuing our study of Mark's gospel, and more specifically, we are in our fourth week studying Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. Um, our text this morning is a pretty famous one in, in the Olivet Discourse. It's the text that mentions the abomination of desolation. You guys have heard of that before. Um, and it also contains a very famous verse, verse 19, that says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Very famous verse from the Olivet Discourse. Um, th this is one part of the discourse that many people get their, their rapture theology and great tribulation beliefs from. I'm sure you guys uh, are familiar with what I'm talking about, but if you're not... Uh, I'm referring uh, to the belief that right before the second coming of Christ, there will be a horrible time of destruction on the whole earth led by the Antichrist and a great time of suffering for everyone in the world who was not already taken to heaven in the secret rapture of the church. Um, if you've ever seen the Left Behind movies or read those books or have seen the old movie A Thief in the Night that I found in my mother's basement last week, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, but as you know by now, I, I reject such sensational doctrines as unbiblical. Uh, they, they make for really interesting reading and movies, as, as the fact that millions of copies of those Left Behind books have been sold. Um, but I don't think that that's what the Olivet Discourse is about at all. Uh, I believe that the discourse finds its fulfillment in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, as Jesus says that it does in verse 30. And I plan on showing you that this morning and how these verses fit within that interpretation. Uh, but it's good to mention at the beginning of this sermon that this text, Mark 13, 14 through 20, uh, ha has some difficult spots. Um, there is much confusion surrounding this text, uh, particularly uh, surrounding what Jesus meant when he spoke of the abomination of desolation, as well as how we should understand that verse 19 that I read to you uh, as having occurred in the first century, right? There's some difficult spots that we're going to have to deal with in this text. And because of these difficulties, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, portions of this sermon will require you to think hard and use your minds uh, to, by God's grace, understand the scriptures. But this passage speaks of horrible things that would come upon the generation then living in Jerusalem. Jesus in this text warns his people of what would come. And he also tells them when to get out of Jerusalem and Judea so that they can be spared and saved from the judgment of God that would come upon the Jews in that generation. And for us today, this text reminds us of the wrath of God, that it is terrifying, that one day it will come against all unbelievers, both the living and the dead. As we confess, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But it also this text gives us hope because it reminds us of the beautiful truth that Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath to come. Jesus promises to save all who will believe on him. There are glories in this text. Right? There, are, there are terrifying truths for sure, 
but there are also glorious truths about the mercy of God found in and only in Christ Jesus our Lord, and they are here in this text for us to learn and to meditate upon, and so may God do so, or rather may God bless us as we do so this morning. Uh, Now, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 20. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you again for the opportunity and blessing that it is to sit under the ministry of the word. Your word is our greatest treasure in this world. It makes the simple wise. It instructs the saints and it leads sinners to the Savior. We love your word and we want to understand your word so that we can know you more, so that we can believe what you have said, and so that we can live in a manner that pleases you. But we need help. In and of ourselves, God, we cannot work understanding and faith in our hearts. And so we ask that you would have mercy and open our minds and hearts to receive your word this morning. By your spirit, work in us and grant us understanding, faith, and obedience to what you've said. Show us our Lord Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come, and glorify yourself in us. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Now, before we dive in, let me briefly remind you, and I mean very briefly, remind you of the context of the Olivet Discourse. First, in verse 2, our Lord prophesied the destruction that would come upon Jerusalem and the temple for Israel's rejection of him. Verse 2, Jesus says, do you see these great buildings, referring to the temple complex? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus prophesies the temples coming down. Second, in verse 4, again, we're establishing context. In verse 4, some of the disciples come to Jesus on the Mount of Olives and they ask him a question. Verse 4 says they ask, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They're asking Jesus about what he had just prophesied in verse 2. Jesus says, the temple's coming down. They say, when and what will be the sign? And the only reference in the context at that point is the temple. So that's what they're asking about. When will the temple come down, and what will be the sign that it's about to take place? And that question is what kicks off the entire Olivet Discourse. I know some of you are saying, we know this, you've said it for four weeks. I get that, but if you don't remember that, you're going to get lost and, and start to think that some of, this, some of these, this language of the Olivet Discourse is pointing to a, our future event, because the, the language sounds that way in some spots. You have to remember the context. Jesus is answering their question in verses 5 through 30, and their question has to do with the temple being destroyed. Lastly, remember our time text in verse 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, 
This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That is, the generation then living will not pass away until all these things, verses 5 through 30, take place. And his mention of all these things is a reference to the disciples' question in verse 4. It matches. What will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? Jesus says all these things will take place within that generation. So everything in verses 5 through 30 is about the time leading up to and the final destruction of the temple. And Jesus says it would happen within the generation living when he spoke. So Jesus in verse 30 sets our interpretive grid for us. Right? We need to interpret what he says in light of his timetable that he gives in verse 30. So there's your context. The temple destruction of AD 70 and the signs that would signal that it was about to take place. And that leads us into our text this morning. Our text begins in verse 14. This is, as some commentators like to say, the beginning of the end. That is the beginning of the end of the temple. Verse 14 begins Jesus' full answer to the disciples' question in verse 4. Everything Jesus has said in verses 5 through 13 functions as preliminary signs preliminary things that the church could expect to happen in the days leading up to the temple's destruction. But as Jesus said in verse 7, the end is not yet. And again in verse 8, these are the beginning of the birth pains. But now Jesus has finally in verse 14 got to the big sign, right? What follows is the sign that the temple is about to come down. And that sign is the abomination of desolation. Let's read verse 14 again. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the abomination of desolation. Uh, just real quick, if I call it the AOD, uh, it's because it's what I abbreviated it in my notes. I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, but if that happens, it's what I'm talking about. The abomination of desolation. This is an enigmatic phrase to many. Right? Like, what, what is that? They, people get confused. So let's dig into what this means. Uh, more literally, abomination of desolation means a sacrilege that brings desolation. An abomination, right? Something idolatrous and wicked that brings desolation or makes desolate. That means it destroys. So the abomination of desolation is an idolatry, an, idol an idolatrous thing that brings destruction. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And some of you maybe recognize this language. Jesus is using the language of Daniel, right? The book of Daniel from the Old Testament. Um, you'll remember if you, if you know the book of Daniel, the first six chapters are really easy, aren't they? It's narrative. Daniel in the lion's den, the Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the, the Hebrew children, and the fiery furnace and all that. And then chapter 7 through the end just starts prophecy, and that's where things start to get a little bit confusing in the book of Daniel. Jesus probably has Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 in mind, and that text is fairly difficult. All right, there are, there are different interpretations offered by many people, and there are some tough nuances to figure out in those four verses. Uh, I admit that I have questions remaining about some of the particulars of Daniel 9. That's a tough one. But even though the text of Daniel is what Jesus is referring to here, and we will look at it here in the next few minutes, I believe that there is actually an easier way to understand what he's talking about when he mentions the abomination of desolation, right? Just real quick, praise God for parallel passages, right? Whenever you read the Gospels and they all record the same thing but in a different language, thank God for that. 
Uh, praise God, especially for parallel passages that were written for people who don't know the Old Testament very well, a.k.a. Luke's gospel, written by a Gentile for Gentiles. Thank God for that. And praise God that Scripture interprets Scripture. Right? That's our primary method of interpretation. Let me read from our, our church's confession, chapter 1, paragraph 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So when you have a tough text, you look and say, is there anything that talks about this but maybe uses more clear language? And then you let the clear text interpret the tough one. Right? So amen, we are to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and that's what we're about to do. And one of the parallels to Mark 13, 14 through 18 is Luke 21, verses 20 through 22. Now I'll read that to you right now. Luke 21, 20 through 22. This is Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, Luke 21. And he says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. As you can tell, the context is the same, isn't it? Right? First, Luke 21 is Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. Second, if you look above at Luke chapter 21, verse 20, Jesus has just finished speaking about persecution, just like the text right above Mark 13, 14 speaks about persecution. And Luke 21, 20 and following says that when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Mark says, when the abomination of desolation stands where he ought not, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I point out all of these things, and maybe I'm laboring the point a bit. I point these things out to prove that there is no way that Luke is speaking about, or rather Luke is recording Jesus speaking about anything else than what Mark is recording as well, right? They're talking about the same thing. It's the same account. Luke is just using different words here. Uh, it seems, in my opinion, that Luke, for his Gentile audience, is giving something of an inspired interpretation of Jesus's words about the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says that this abomination that makes desolate is an army, that would surround Jerusalem. And when the armies approach, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are to run. Why? Because that army is going to bring desolation on Jerusalem. And we know something really interesting I found from the writings of the first century historian Josephus. Josephus, by the way, was there when all this happened. He was alive during this Jewish war. And apparently, according to Josephus, early in the Jewish war with Rome, there was a point where the Roman army once surrounded Jerusalem and began to lay siege. And then for some reason, they backed off for a time. And then they came back later with a vengeance and laid waste to the city. So when the army surrounded Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples would know that it was now or never. They must flee Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea, or they would fall under the judgment of God that was to come upon the city. Now, in light of my, my proposed interpretation looking at Luke, there are some questions that we need to answer. Right? So there are three, and I want to answer them now. First, how were the Roman armies an abomination? Well, the Roman armies carried ensigns and banners. And on them, right, on their banners and things that they would carry, there were images of Caesar 
and other Roman gods. So these ensigns and banners were repulsive to the Jews. To anyone who knows the second commandment, these would be repulsive. They were idolatrous. They promoted false worship of the emperor and false worship of the Roman gods. Dare I say it, the Romans were an abomination to those who lived in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons was their idolatry and their promotion of idolatry. And all the Jewish Christians would have recognized them as abominable. Right? These are abominations. Second question, how are the Roman armies a desolation? This one's very simple. They were destroyers. Whenever the Roman army decided to lay waste to an area, that's what they did. That's how they conquered the entire known world. The Roman armies would ransack and ruin everything that they waged war against, and they would bring desolation upon Israel through siege and war. So they were indeed an abomination that brought desolation. But then third, the toughest question, look at Mark 13, 14, says he'll be standing where he ought not to be. Well, how are the Roman armies standing where he ought not to be? Well, first you should know this. The word he in Mark 13, 14 can be and is in some translations legitimately translated it. So you can read the text standing where it ought not to be. So it's not necessarily an individual, but it's an it. Second, Matthew's parallel in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Bear with me. This is important. I know this. we're getting into the weeds a little bit. You're going to be fine. Matthew's parallel in Matthew 24, 15 says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Some people there will say the holy place must refer only to the temple. So this is going to be some abomination in the temple. But I don't think that we should read that phrase so narrowly. Right? This standing where he ought to be, ought not be standing in the holy place. I don't think we should read that narrowly to just mean the temple, especially in light of what Luke says. The city of Jerusalem as a whole is referred to multiple times in the Old Testament as the holy city. The land of Israel as a whole in Zechariah 2.12 is called the holy land. By the way, that's why people call it that. It's because that's what the Bible calls it, the holy land, the holy city. So I believe that Jesus is talking about the city as well as the temple or as well as the sanctuary in this text. I believe that in part because it fits perfectly with Luke's account at this point to view the holy place being the temple and the city as a whole. And that's not to mention, and we'll get into this in a moment, the prophecy mentioned in Daniel 9 speaks of the city and the sanctuary being destroyed, as well as Jerusalem being called the holy city. So this holy place is the city and the temple, so like the whole area. Um, More than that, Mark 13, 14, Luke 21, 20, and Matthew 25, 16 all tell readers to flee to the mountains of Judea. So clearly more than just the temple being destroyed is in view because they need to get out of the region. So the holy place is where is the whole area, the general region where the temple was located. And the Roman armies ought not be in that holy place because they were an abomination. They were an idolatrous thing that should not be in this holy place. So there's your abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be. In light of all this, it's not hard to see, being guided by the inspired interpretation of Luke, that the Roman armies were indeed the abomination of desolation. They were the idolatrous thing that brought destruction upon Jerusalem. And indeed, 
the Roman armies fulfilled this prophecy to the full when they laid siege to the city and eventually burned and tore the whole thing down to the ground, including the temple stone by stone, just as Jesus said. The Roman armies surrounding the city were the signal to get out immediately. They were the sign that God's judgment was about to come. So when the Jewish Christians saw the Roman armies coming, they needed to go. I think that's the proper interpretation of the text. Again, in God's kindness, he inspired Luke to record things differently so that those who are not so familiar with the Old Testament could understand Jesus' allusion to Daniel chapter 9. And this is a, very, this is a great blessing for us, right? So if you don't understand the, the prophecy in Daniel 9 that we're about to look at, you kind of didn't need to because Luke tells you what Jesus is talking about. But with that said, it's still a good idea for us to spend a little bit of time in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Go ahead and turn there. Uh, what, what, I, what I want to do right now is just let you see the language our Lord was using when he spoke of the abomination of desolation and why. And this, this, this blew my doors off studying this passage. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I'm just going gonna, gonna to read the whole thing and just give a general summary. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place or a most holy one. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, uh, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war." Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Confused yet? Lots of weeks, right? Lots of, lots of strange stuff, it sounds like here. I'm just going to give a brief interpretation and summary of what's going on. I'm not going to get caught in every nuance because I still have questions about some of the nuances. I just want us to see the big picture of what this prophecy is saying. And just so you know, I am hugely indebted to a, a scholar named Marcellus Kick, K-I-K, fantastic commentator. I recommend you read him on the Olivet Discourse. Um, so let me give a big summary here. First, in verse 24, God reveals to Daniel that 70 weeks had been decreed, uh, literally 77s, right, 70 weeks, 77s, and that's symbolic prophetic language for 490 years, 70 times 7, 490, and within that 490 years, these, these symbolic weeks of years, verse 24 tells us that things would happen that pertain to sin, atonement, and righteousness bring, being brought about for God's people, as well as a sealing up of the prophecy and the prophet. That is a vindication of this prophecy. So within 490 years, this prophecy was going to be fulfilled. And it has to do with sin, atonement, everlasting righteousness, etc. Verse 25 then tells us when the 490 years would begin. It would begin with the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. That anointed one there was the word Messiah. So once the decree went out to rebuild the city, the prophetic timetable would begin. 
And most commentators believe that the timetable began in either 457 B.C. or 444 B.C., depending on how you think that time should be reckoned, considering how Jews had their calendars, and there's some complicated things here. I personally believe that 444 B.C. is the proper date, and it aligns really well with Nehemiah chapter 2, with the decree of King Artaxerxes in his 20th year to rebuild Jerusalem. Not just the temple, but to rebuild the city, right? To rebuild Jerusalem. And from then... From that decree, 69 weeks would pass. That is 483 of the 490 years. Stay with me. This is going to pay off. 483 of the years would, would pass after that, and during that time, the temple and the city would be rebuilt. Verse 26 then says that after the 483 years, after 69 weeks, the Messiah, an anointed one, would be cut off and have nothing. That is, the Messiah would make himself known in this final week of years and then be cut off. He would be killed. Verse 27 says that during this last week, that is, during the course of this week, the Messiah would make a strong covenant with many. This is the same language of Isaiah 53 that speaks of the Messiah being cut off for the sins of the people, as well as the New Testament language of the Messiah making a new covenant in order to save the many. He'll make a strong covenant with many. And verse 27 also says, catch this, this will happen at the end of the first half of the week, three and a half years. How long was Jesus' earthly ministry? Three and a half years. He'll be cut off in the middle of the last week. This is, this is amazing stuff. I don't know why I was surprised that God's word came to pass when I was studying this, right? Duh. All right, but here we are. After three and a half years of public ministry, Jesus' ministry ended with him being cut off for the sins of his people and bringing in a strong covenant, the new covenant that saves sinners. Finally, verses 26 and 27 also tell of the destruction that would come upon the city and the sanctuary after the Messiah had been cut off. Now listen, I want to be clear. It does not say that it will happen in the second half of the week. The time isn't specified. If you read closely, Daniel never tells us what happens in the second half of the last week. I don't think God cared to tell us. All you need to know is that in this last week, Messiah will come, and halfway through the week, he'll be cut off, and then God, I think God essentially doesn't care about the second half of the week because he doesn't say anything else. So this city and sanctuary being destroyed, the time is not specified, but nevertheless, the prophecy says that they will be ruined. Verse 26 says, its end, that's the city and the sanctuary's end, shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27 says, and on the wings of abominations shall one come who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. In other words, the abomination of desolation would come and destroy the city and the temple. Now, there are certainly many nuances and questions that maybe some of you have about this, these verses in Daniel. I got them too. But I want you to see this. The bottom line, here's the big picture. Daniel spoke of how the Messiah would come, die to atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. I love that phrase. Bring in everlasting righteousness and establish a strong covenant with his people. And then sometime after all of this, the city and the sanctuary, what is that? Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. By who? By one who comes on the wings of abominations. 
This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. And that's why he uses the language of the abomination of desolation here. And that's also why, if you wondered, why does Mark, Jesus didn't say let the reader understand. Mark added the, it's a parenthetical comment. Mark says that. Let the reader understand. Understand what? Think real hard about what Jesus is saying if you know your Old Testament. The abomination of desolation. The one who's going to destroy the city and the temple. And then Luke tells us that he's actually referring to the Roman armies who would come and destroy Jerusalem. Now that was a lot. That was a lot, I admit. You guys are doing great. That was just one verse. Don't worry, we're not going to do that with the rest of them. But I hope you see the abomination of desolation is the Roman armies. That's all the point that I wanted you to see, and I wanted to prove the case. So let's take a step back now and consider verses 14 through 18 as a unit. Let's read them. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Jesus says that when the abomination comes, when the Roman armies surround Jerusalem, run, run. He's warning the Jewish Christians who would still be living in Jerusalem when this time came. It's a to whom it may concern kind of an audience at this point. If you're there, listen, when it happens, run. And he's, by the way, clearly speaking to first century people here. Um, He talks about not coming down from your housetops. Who hangs out on their housetops? Uh, People in the first century did. They'd spend time on the flat housetops in the evening where it was cooler uh, than inside their home. That's where they would go to rest often. Second, Jesus mentions working in a field. Well, that fits. First century Palestine was an agricultural society. Many people worked out in the field outside of the city. Third, he mentions not turning back to get your cloak. Outside of the Harry Potter world, nobody wears a cloak anymore, right? A cloak was a very important and common piece of clothing in the first century. Very important. Uh, Fourth, he speaks of how difficult it will be for pregnant women and women with nursing children to flee the city. Why would that make things difficult? You're on foot or you're on animal, which is very hard to do quickly, to get out quickly on foot or with an animal if you're pregnant or have small children. Fifth, he he speaks about how winter will make things more difficult to escape. Fun fact for you, in Palestine, winter means shorter days and incredibly muddy roads back then. That would make your travel very difficult. Lastly, Jesus speaks about those who live in Judea needing to flee to the mountains. That is, what mountain? The mountains surrounding Judea. So this is not a global event he's talking about. This isn't something that's going to come upon the whole world. It's something that's going to come upon that region. It's a local, regional event. He's not talking about something that's going to happen and affect the entire world. Everything Jesus mentions in verses 14 through 18 are references to the first century and how they lived and the difficulties they would face. As Jesus said, and I'm, just, I'm doing this, I want to vindicate our Lord's prophecy here. As he said in verse 30, these things would happen within the generation then living. And he meant it. He's a true prophet. But don't miss this. They need to run. They need to run. They need to get out. Don't turn back. Don't get your stuff. Get out and get out now. Why? Because the wrath of God is about to break out against Jerusalem. And you don't want to be there when the sword of God's justice falls. 
Why should they get out? Because a great slaughter is about to fall upon Jerusalem and the temple, the likes of which Israel had never seen, not even in their first exile. The Son of God had been murdered at the hands of the Jews in that city. And now, one of the most chilling phrases, I think, in the Bible, as Jesus says in Luke 20, 22, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. That's a chilling phrase, isn't it? These are days of vengeance to fulfill what was written. To fulfill what was written in Daniel about the city and the sanctuary being destroyed. And who would take vengeance? What do we know biblically about vengeance? Well, are we to take vengeance? No. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is God's vengeance. This is terrifying. This is God's vengeance on the Jews for their rejection and murder of his only begotten son. Yes, yes, God is a forgiving God. He is a merciful God, but he is a God who is full of vengeance for the wicked. He doesn't forget. He doesn't forget. He forgives all those who come to him in faith, but he does not forget the sins of the wicked. He's a vengeful God. They refused to repent. The Jews refused to repent. They continued on with their false religious systems. They rejected the Lord of glory, as Paul says, and they killed him. And now the vengeance of Almighty God was to fall upon them for their sins. Now let's be clear. The Romans would be the ones to do it. But as God did with Assyria, think of Isaiah chapter 10. As God did with Assyria in the days of Isaiah, he was going to wield Rome as an axe in his hand to strike Israel and punish them for their sin. And why was God doing this? Because they rejected Jesus. That was their great sin for which he was, he was punishing them this severely. They rejected Christ. Please hear me this morning, and I'm not doubting anyone in here's profession of faith. I believe that I know you all. It is a fearful thing to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Meditate upon this in your own hearts now. It is a fearful thing to reject Christ. You leave yourself wide open to the wrath of God. You leave yourself with no Savior. You leave yourself with only your sins. And a holy, just, righteous, and angry God with whom you must reckon with. Jonathan Edwards' sermon was so beautifully, accurately titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can have Christ or you can have wrath. Those are the only options for all men, Christ or wrath, either through faith in Christ you are forgiven and reconciled to God or you remain in your sins and you have to answer to a God who hates sin and promises to punish the wicked. Consider this for yourselves this morning and consider this for maybe those whom you know and love who have not come to Christ. They leave themselves with no Savior. But please know this, nobody escapes God. Nobody escapes Him. It would be easier for the earth to hide from the sun than for sinners to hide from God. Nobody escapes God. He will judge all men. The judgment on Jerusalem is just a picture of this. Salvation through faith in Christ or an eternal damnation in hell for your sins are the only options for all men. And all men will stand before the judgment throne of the Almighty. Know that. Mark it down and fear. 
I know we always say fear in the Bible means that you should have respect. Yes, sometimes, but sometimes it means be afraid. You should be afraid to think about encountering God apart from Christ. And then praise God if your faith is in Christ that you will never have to do that. But the thought that I would have to face the judgment of God apart from Jesus Christ in my place should make you afraid. Apart from Christ, there is no hope for salvation. Know that. But back to our text. The slaughter of the Jews would be awful. And that's why our Lord continues in verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now just real quick, some people look at this verse and immediately think this has to refer to the end of human history. I know that I've thought that in the past. In other words, since Jesus says this will be the worst thing ever and nothing had ever been so bad as what will happen and never will be this bad again, therefore this verse must be about the end of the world. I don't think that's the case for a few reasons. First, the time text in verse 30. Jesus says it will happen in this generation, the generation then living. Second, the words, you ever wonder that for in those days is how the verse starts? What days? What days? The days he's been talking about. The, the, the days when the abomination of desolation, the days when the Roman armies will appear and lay siege to Jerusalem. That's the context. For in those days when the abomination comes. So that's first century. Third, the words of verse 19. This, this maybe will help you just read your Bible in general. I know it's helped me. The words of verse 19 sound very much like Old Testament prophetic judgment language, doesn't it? I believe, uh, along with uh, Ken Gentry, this is prophetic hyperbole. There's a, put that term in your back pocket. It makes you sound smart, but the concept is actually really helpful. Prophetic hyperbole. Hyperbole means an exaggerated statement that you use in order to make a point, right? Everyone in Ohio showed up to that event. Did literally everyone in Ohio show up to that? No, they didn't, but you exaggerated your statement in order to make a point. There were a lot of people there. Prophetic hyperbole is whenever the prophets do this, uh, specifically with reference to God's judgment. The prophets use exaggerated language in order to underscore the severity of God's judgment. One example of this is found in Exodus chapter 11, verse 6. And there, referring to the coming tenth plague, right, the worst of all of them, the killing of the firstborn of every house in Egypt, we read this. Moses says, There will be such a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Now bear with me. If this is to be taken as literally as some would say, some would say that we should take Jesus' words in verse 19, then Jesus is contradicting Moses. If Jesus is in verse 19, if, he's, if this is about a worldwide destruction and devastation that would fall, then surely it would affect Egypt, wouldn't it? And Jesus says it's the worst thing that's ever going to happen, and it never will happen, it'll be so bad again. If that's true, and it's about the whole world, then Moses was incorrect. Whenever he said nothing so bad would ever happen in Egypt again. Unless, of course, they're both using prophetic hyperbole. I think that's how we reconcile those texts. There are many other examples I could give you, but we don't have time. Um, a fourth reason I think verse 19 was fulfilled in the first century, and this is big. This is actually really important for our theology. Consider this verse theologically for a moment. From a redemptive historical perspective, this was the worst thing that ever happened to the Jews. 
As a covenant people, this is the worst thing that ever happened to them. Yes, it was worse than the Holocaust. As a covenant people, from a religious theological perspective, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was the worst thing that ever happened to the Jews. Why do I say that? God, in this judgment, was divorcing Israel. He was divorcing Israel. There had never been anything like this before for them. Israel had been an unfaithful wife, an an adulterous wife who had whored after other gods and rejected her husband, the living God, Jesus, when he came to them. And so, God is now ending the old covenant in a huge way. That era is over and it will never come back. And there had never been, nor ever would be, such a horrible thing ever happened to Israel from the divine perspective. Tracking with me theologically, this is the worst thing that ever happened to them. And actually, we have happy expectations for what's going to happen to the Jews as a people before Christ comes. Romans 11 says, God will bring them into the church. So this was the worst thing that would ever happen to them, followed by the best thing that's ever happened to them that will happen at some point in the future. But truly, brothers and sisters, please hear me. Verse 19 is accurate. There had never been a judgment like this one on the nation of Israel. Josephus records that around 1.1 million Jews were crucified and slaughtered in other ways during the Jewish war. They would nail one Jew to one side of the cross and another Jew to another side of the cross. Hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions happening daily during this siege that the Romans laid. It was awful. I also heard a preacher mention that Around 90,000 Jews were carried off into slavery throughout the Roman Empire. 1.1 million dead, 90,000 or so carried off into slavery. There are horrors that have been recorded that took place during the siege of Jerusalem. During the siege, some of the people in the city actually set fire uh, to the storehouses of food and caused a horrible food shortage. And there's recording of at least one mother who roasted her infant and ate it. The elderly were beaten to death for whatever food that they had. There are records of children taking the food out of the mouths of their grandparents and mothers taking food out of the mouths of their own children. There was a rumor that got around that some of the Jews who were fleeing the city had swallowed gold and precious jewels right, so that they could pass it later and still have their wealth. And when the Roman armies heard of this, any Jews that they caught fleeing, they would slit their stomachs open and go through them. And there was recorded that in one night, over 2,000 Jews were dissected by the Romans as they tried to flee. Children, Josephus records, were walking around with bellies swollen from famine, falling over in the streets, dead from starvation. Bodies were piling up over the temple, or rather piling up in the temple. Blood was actually standing thick in the temple area. And it got to a point where the the smell was so awful that the Jews began to throw dead bodies over the temple walls, and they would putrefy. And one of the Roman generals said, this is such a horrible thing. This must be the judgment of a god. I have read accounts of things that happened during the destruction of Jerusalem that have made me physically nauseous. I've only shared some of them with you. God indeed came in judgment against the Jews, and his vengeance was terrifying. Terrifying. Please hear me. God judges in history in order to point forward to the final day of judgment. And I can see there's a seriousness in this room as I'm, I'm reading off these things that happened in history. The wrath of God is terrifying. 
If he does this in history, what do you think happens on the great day? The holy city was raised to the ground. And all because they rejected Jesus. But here's an amazing piece of history. According to ancient Christian histories, no Christians were caught in the siege of Jerusalem. None. The Christians got out and avoided the wrath of God. Why? Because they trusted Jesus and his words to them in the Olivet Discourse. Not one Christian died in the siege. We now turn to the final verse, verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Here Jesus gives a blessed promise to his infant church. The days of vengeance would not last long. If they would, apparently the Roman armies would have killed everyone in the region, possibly moving out from Jerusalem and on to where the Christians would have been hiding in the hills of Judea or mountains of Judea. And if you say, well, why would they do that? Remember this, to the Romans at the time, the Christians were just a subset of Jews, and they were slaughtering the Jews. So if God did not cut the days short, the Roman armies would have went out looking for anyone who maybe got away. And, but Jesus says, for the sake of the elect whom God chose, he shortened the days. That is, for the sake of those who believe on Christ, that's who the elect are, for the sake of those who believe on Christ, those whom God has chosen and loves, those Jewish Christians who would be around Jerusalem when the temple came down, for them, God shortened the days, and he did so so that they would be saved. Now, the context here is not eternal salvation. They're, they're the elect. They already, they already have that. It's a physical salvation. Their earthly lives would be spared, and that's why God will cut the days short. And the siege actually didn't last very long just as Jesus said. But catch this, theologically, catch this. Who are the elect? Who are the chosen people of God? Are they the Jews? No, they used to be, but not anymore. God's elect is not the nation of Israel. Jesus uses the word elect to refer to his church here. That's really important for us to take note of. There's a theology that says God has two peoples. You've heard this? The Jews are God's people and also the church and God has two distinct plans. No, Jesus says, my elect, my chosen are the ones who trust in me. That's Jesus' elect. There aren't two peoples of God. There's one people of God and it is the church. And catch this, God's elect are spared from destruction while the rest are left in their sins and left for judgment. Those who love, trust, and listen to the Son of God are God's people now. The church, faith in Christ is what matters. And there's a glorious principle here in verse 20. God will not let his elect perish under his wrath. Jerusalem was to be judged, but God's people were to be spared. Please hear me. I, we love because he first loved us, but this principle is true as well. God loves those who love the Lord Jesus. And all who trust in Christ will live. Now, what does this text speak to us today? I, I believe the application is, is very simple, and I've hinted at it throughout, and most of you can probably see where I'm going. First, please, please know this. The wrath of God is a terrifying thing. God's judgments in history point us forward to the final judgment of the living and the dead at the end of history. The judgment that fell on Jerusalem serves us today as a picture 
of the judgment that will fall upon those who do not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior by faith. Judgment is coming. I think sometimes we forget this. I know that I do, right? Like, why do we preach the gospel? Sometimes it's, well, I just do it because that's why I'm a Christian, right? That's what I'm supposed to do. No, we do it because judgment is coming. Because judgment is coming. Because all men will have to face God. We do it for the glory of God as well. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. But we do this for one of the big reasons is because we know that the day of judgment is coming. And hear me, the wrath of God on the final day will be infinitely worse than the wrath that came upon the Jews in A.D. 70. The destruction of Jerusalem and some of the horrors that I mentioned to you this morning, it's child's play. That's nothing compared to the eternal damnation that God will hand out on that day. We, we don't have words. I don't. I, I thought, how, how do I convey this? I don't, I don't have words to tell you how terrible and horrifying the judgment of God will be. All that I have and you have is the picture language of Scripture. What picture does God give us of his wrath? An eternally burning lake of fire. That's the picture. That's, the, that's, the, that's, that's it. That's all that I can tell you. That's what it will be like. An eternally burning lake of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. An eternity in fire where the body does not die and the fire never runs out of fuel. And listen, if that is the picture language, we shudder to consider what the reality will be. We cannot imagine what it is to take on the very wrath of God forever. Forever. Think about that word. Forever. With no breaks, with no end. We can endure almost anything if we know it's going to eventually end. This will never end. And the smoke of their torment goes up day and night forever and ever. Fear him. Fear this God. Fear his wrath. As Romans 11.22 says, note then the kindness and severity of God. There is horrifying severity, horrifying judgment that will come upon all those who reject Jesus. But there is great kindness toward those who believe. And that leads us to our last point. Jesus knows how to save his own. That's a beautiful thing in this text. In our text, the Lord warned the disciples to flee the wrath that was to come against Jerusalem, and they did. Christians didn't die in the Jewish war. Jesus did not want his people to perish in the destruction of Jerusalem, so he told them, here's how you get out, and here's when you do it. Know this, our Lord loves his church. He gave his life for her. He loves his people. He loves those who love him. Please hear me, he knows how to save his people. He knew how to save the early church from physical destruction, and he knows how to save his church from eternal damnation. Trust in him. You're in safe hands with him. He loves you. He loves you. And know this, this promise of salvation is for you. The promise of wrath is for the world, and the promise of salvation through faith in Christ is for the world. And know this as well, as Daniel prophesied, the Messiah has come. 
and he's been cut off for the sins of his people. Atonement has been made. Eternal righteousness has been brought in. The new covenant that saves sinners has been inaugurated in the blood of Christ. And God has testified to the truth that Jesus is this Messiah by raising him from the dead and subsequently destroying the nation that rejected him. You ever thought about that? He's testified that Jesus is the one who can save because he destroyed the nation that rejected him. Jesus can save you. And let me just encourage you. I know everyone in here makes a, a, the good profession of faith. I, I don't doubt anyone's profession. So let me encourage you with this. Jesus has actually done enough to save you. He's done enough to save you. You don't need to fill up his merits. He has more merit than you could ever need. He's done enough to save you. In his life, he lived to give you his perfect righteousness by faith. He did enough. In his cross, he atoned for your sin, putting away your iniquity by his own blood. He has done more than enough to make atonement for your sins. He's done enough to save you. Know that. All you have to do is believe upon him. Believe on him and you make entrance into God's covenant. Believe upon him, his righteousness is yours. Believe upon him, your sins have been washed away. He has done enough to save you from the wrath to come. He knows how to save sinners. And he doesn't just know how to save sinners. He actually did it for all who believe. Christian, it's done. Rest in him. Oh, fear the wrath of God. Fear the wrath of God. When you think about standing before God apart from Christ, fear. And then glory all the more in knowing Jesus saves me from the wrath to come. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you. We thank you for your word that, that puts simple truths to us in, in so many different ways because you, you want us to grasp them. And God, we thank you today that through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are spared from your wrath. Though we deserve to perish, though we deserve you to hate us, nevertheless, you loved us and had mercy and brought us into your family through, through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Though we deserve to stand before you in our sins and perish eternally, you have given us a substitute, a savior, a redeemer, your own son. And we glory in him. Help all of us to rely only and always upon Christ and his works done to save us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.